0: When I decided I wanted to get more active in multifamily, I felt like my choice was, well, I can start small, like buy a 12-unit or a 20-unit, or I could go large and look for 100-plus units. Hello, and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation,
1: where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello and welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. With me, excited to have Ryan Webster and uh, Warren Dresner. How are you guys doing today?
0: Doing great, how are you, Todd?
1: Awesome, I'm doing great. A little bit about uh, Ryan and Warren. They are the uh, owners of the Equity Yield Group, a real estate investment firm that specializes in institutional grade A and B class multifamily assets in uh, solid markets. Um, and uh, managed um, and operated by an experienced team. So they have a strong and consistent track record of delivering results, excellent results to their investors, high standard, focused on quality, and they also invest alongside their investors. So with that said, I'm gonna let each of you give a little bit more about your backgrounds, how you ended up with Equity Yield Group, and then maybe we'll dive into what you guys are doing today.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll start off. Um, So hooked up with Warren a couple of years ago, and we founded uh, Equity Yield Group. Um, Prior to that, I owned and operated a construction development company. Uh, So most of my career has been in in real estate in one form or another. Um, Ran that company for a little over 10 years. uh, Did a lot of uh, single-family development, um, some smaller commercial projects, um, strip malls, standalone restaurants. Um, and some small multi, and then uh, founded Equity Yield Group with Warren and transitioned into a slightly different business model with, uh, you know, buy and hold investment and uh, longer term rentals. Great.
0: I guess my background is a little bit different to Ryan's. Um, So I'm from Australia originally. I've lived in various places in the world, but ended up in Miami, Florida a little over three years ago. I've got a background in insurance and finance in the corporate world, Um, spending 20 plus years there. And originally, I got into real estate probably 12 years ago for the tax benefits. I was looking for investments that were tax efficient or tax advantaged. Uh, From there, I slowly discovered the power of passive income. So built up a small portfolio of single family homes, but realized that there's a lot of work in that. Um, Yeah, not so passive. Yeah, not so passive at all. But when I got to the U.S. in uh, 2019, I discovered real estate syndications. And that, that is truly passive. So I started investing as an LP in, in multifamily syndications um, and kind of grew a portfolio there and decided to start to get more active. And so a little over two years ago, Ryan and I got together. We were both kind of targeting the same types of deals and started working together on an ad hoc basis found that we really worked well together and so slowly developed this company equity yield group from there.
1: What made you want to switch from the passive side into the active side?
0: Uh, a couple of things I, I realized you know at some point I, I realized the power of real estate real estate's a get rich slow scheme Yep. Um, and as I in invested more and more as a passive investor, it was great. I could see cash flow coming in and I did the math and realized, well, this is fantastic. When I'm 60 or 65, I'm going to be able to retire. And the more I thought about it, I thought, well, why do I have to wait 20, 25 years to have that level of wealth? I wanted to try and accelerate that process. Sure. So I still invest as a passive investor, but I'm now an active investor okay. as well because I really wanted to accelerate that process.
1: Yeah. Love it. Love it. So the first deal you guys took down, correct me if I'm wrong, was a $26 million acquisition. Right. Walk me through that transaction. A $26 million acquisition is something that even people that have been in the industry for many years can't take down or think they can't take down at least and so that's your first deal though, was a 26 million million dollar acquisition take, take me let's talk about that process first of all i guess what made you think that you could take down a 26 million dollar deal um and then we'll dive in
0: uh i guess i can have a go at answering that first um you know a lot of people even me when i when i decided i wanted to get more active in multifamily. I felt like my choice was, well, I can start small, like buy a 12 unit or a 20 unit, or I could go large and look for 100 plus units. So even at that point in time, there was this perception or self-doubt about, can you really buy a 100 unit property? Whether that's going to cost $5 million or $26 million. And I think a lot of it is about mindset. Mindset and, and forethought, just understanding what's required in order to take take down one of those bigger properties. So I agree with you, 26 million is a big deal for the first one, but a lot of it comes down to mindset. I think Ryan and I, although it was our first deal, it it didn't happen overnight. We'd been working together looking for deals for almost a year before we found that one. We'd built up a network, a team. Um, We were confident that we had the team to be able to buy a property of that size and do a transaction of that size. We can get into it in a little bit more detail in a moment, but um, we used institutional capital to help close that deal. And again, that wasn't an overnight thing. We'd been working with some institutions for nine, 12 months, trying to build relationships with them. We had those relationships at that point in time. And on top of that, both our backgrounds kind of lend up, lend, lend themselves to that kind of transaction. Just my background in finance for 20 years. I'm I've got some experience doing more complex capital markets transactions. Ryan's background in the construction industry, a lot of those deals, a lot of the loans that you get in construction are more complicated. They involve mezzanine debt, they involve pref equity. So we were familiar with the pieces involved and we were very intentional about building relationships, building the right relationships and building the right team in order to be able to take down a deal of that size. And I think that was a huge factor in in us being able to accomplish that. Yeah,
2: and, and to add to that, you know, Warren's right, we, you know, had a good sense of our investment thesis and, and what types of properties we want to invest in and where, and there's there's a cost to to play. In these markets and with these asset classes so you know 26 million sounds like a lot for a first deal but we knew going in that that was just the cost to get into you know the types of assets that we wanted to invest in um so there you know like warren said there was a lot of work a lot of planning a lot of forethought that went into the strategy of you know how we're going to acquire these assets
1: how many units was that first deal it
0: was a uh, 148 It was a 2016 build and it's in Sarasota, Florida.
1: That's great. Value add, assuming?
0: Yeah, so although it's, I mean, we we love these A-class deals but we're not buying at the luxury end. So it's A-class by virtue of the fact that it was built in 2016, but the interiors needed an upgrade. The kitchens were ugly, they were cheap. So there was definitely scope for us to spend seven grand a unit and create that value add that we needed to make the numbers work. Love it. Let's talk about the let's talk about
1: that uh, institutional money that you're looking at, and it's actually timely because we've been talking with some institutional money. What did you do? Like, how how did you even know who to talk to start with? Were you working with brokers? And you you mentioned that you'd been talking with these companies for many months. So I think a lot of people are really curious about. Working with institutional money, I, I want to dive in quite a bit so people understand what that is. First of all, what is institutional money? I guess so. Explain that real quick, and then how did you build relationships or how did you get people on board to even be interested in you?
2: Yeah, um, you know, first off, you know, institutional capital—that they are, you know, funds that specialize in placing capital in you know commercial real estate. Um, they're typically not operators themselves, some of them are, but for the most part, um, you know, they are looking to invest in, in deals and, and with operators. Um, you know, we, we started working uh, and still work with, uh, you know, our capital markets uh, brokers, um, and they, you know, started with the introductions, um, but it's really about the type of investment strategy that you're using, the type of assets you invest in, your track record and where you're investing. And there has to be some sort of alignment between your investment thesis and the investment thesis of these institutions or the funds that you're placing capital from. Um, and the, the next piece is, you know, you have to understand that it, it is not like your common equity investor. It is it is somewhere between a loan and your common equity investor. So it's, it's not just... Uh, you know, capital, it comes with some, um, some caveats. Um, you know, they're usually going to restrict uh, your fees. Um, you know, they're typically going to have some clauses of, of non-performance where, you know, they can drag the deal to, to sale to preserve their capital in an, in an event where they feel that they need to. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot of other smaller pieces that come into it that you have to understand what to expect, what you can negotiate for, and what you can't negotiate on, um, but it really comes down to having a solid business plan, uh, a team behind it to execute that business plan. Uh, so you can go into the agreement with confidence, um, that you're protected from the downside, uh, of these agreements, just given your team's ability to perform. And, uh, you know, the business plan you laid out is, is realistic. Love it.
1: Where, where do you find them? You just do a Google search institutional
2: money. Um, no, really, the, the capital markets guys are, are the best place to start um, for, for a couple of reasons. You know, they have relationships with these institutions. They've placed capital before with these institutions. Um, but more importantly, you know, the experience of working with them, they have a sense of, of how they work, how they operate, what they're going to need, what they can give on. And, you know, the biggest part for, for us as syndicators is, are they going to be at the closing table with a check? Um when you're only planning on, on bringing, you know, a certain percentage of the common equity and our contract periods are, are typically tight. It's still a very competitive market out there. So when you get to, to day 60 and you have to close, um, you need them to show up with the money.
1: Yeah, how do you ensure that actually happens? Cause right, if you put a $26 million property under contract, you probably have a good chunk of earnest money at risk, maybe a couple million dollars even at risk or more. How do you make sure they're actually going to show up to the closing table and the whole deal doesn't just fall apart.
2: So there's, there's no guarantees, but again, it starts with you have to understand what is their investment thesis? What are they looking for in investment? What is the definition of good risk adjusted returns for them? Um, and, you know, can you convey to them that uh, you have a strong team in place that can execute on this? Um, and that's what they're looking for. They're going to go through their due diligence process um, they're going to underwrite the deal, obviously, but more importantly, they're going to dig deep into you as the operator, your team, and your business, and they have to have you know confidence in your ability to execute. Um, so that that's really the biggest piece, is, is make sure that uh, you're selling them a product they want. Um, if you're bringing them some 1964 built heavy value add deal, um, they're probably not interested to begin with. If they say they're interested, they'll probably back out post-due diligence once they uh, really start digging in.
0: The other thing I think we, we managed to achieve over that six, nine, 12 month process was we were interviewing some of these firms just as much as they were interviewing us. So by interacting with them on deals that we didn't end up winning, we saw the way that some of them worked and some of them we naturally gravitated towards and, and we just had confidence that we, you know, we were aligned. And that gave us confidence to be able to transact with those types of firms as opposed to others who might have been more aggressive, more arrogant, a um, little harder to predict. And the broker came, um, plays a big role in that as well. So working with a capital markets broker, we placed a certain amount of trust in their judgment as well. And they could vouch for some of these firms because they had transacted with them numerous times before. So that gave us a lot of confidence as well.
1: So you, you, you're using a broker that's bringing you relationships already. Exactly. Yeah, and and so then you said you're sending them deals, you're sending them transactions, not necessarily stuff is it properties you have, just offers on, or is it properties that you actually have under contract? Uh,
0: well, go well, ahead. Often we're sending it to them before it's under contract, mm-hmm. so we won't send them every single deal that we look at, but when a deal starts to look very interesting. Um, a couple of these guys, we will bring them into the conversation early, because we don't want to get it under contract and then find out that it doesn't work for them or yeah, that nobody has interest. Parameters. So we want to have those conversations as early as possible.
2: Yeah, yeah and more to that point, um, you know, you have to understand the cost of capital and the capital structure. It's going to vary from from deal to deal and from. You know, uh, equity shop to equity shop. So when we're underwriting a deal and and trying to project uh, investment returns for our common equity, we have to understand the cost of capital uh, for that institutional equity. Um, So that's where, again, starting early, developing these relationships, understanding the product that each of these firms offer, and then getting them, you know, to take a peek at the deal and give you indicative terms so you can understand their cost of capital and better project returns for your investors.
1: So they're bringing uh, a portion of the equity needed to the table. The rest of the remaining equity comes from your investors, or the remaining equity comes from who? And, and how much are they bringing? Typically, I mean, I, I obviously it probably varies per deal, but how, how much are they bringing?
2: It'll vary from. A product to product, the, the preferred equity shops, and again, it's a little different environment uh, in today's debt market. Mm-hmm. Um, but on that particular deal, we we got to eighty eight percent of cost on on the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, typically, you know, somewhere between you know eighty to eighty seven is pretty realistic for a preferred equity product. If you are doing you know what would be a pure joint venture, um, you know they they go all the way up to to ninety seven three. Um, but you know, 90, 10, 80, 20 is pretty typical for a, for a joint venture deal.
1: Yeah. And then you're, so then you're bringing the rest of the capital. It doesn't have to be your capital. It sounds like, it sounds like you guys were actually raising the the additional equity for that transaction.
2: Yeah. That's a mix of, uh, you know, our, our capital from uh, the GP team and the rest of sponsorship and then capital we raised from our LP investors.
1: You talk about the lower fees they they want you to chop down your fees they probably want you to chop down potentially chop down your equity splits um what what's that kind of look like
2: again it, it's it's deal specific um but you know leaps and bounds you know it's, it's tough to get over you know one percent on an acquisition fee uh with these uh, depending on the shop some of them won't allow an asset management fee uh, some of them cap at two percent some of them cap at one and a half um, it's all all deal specific but usually they're they're looking for you know lower risk and the way they look at it is if they're you know bringing 80 85 percent of the capital their last dollar sits at 85 percent of the value of the deal so their downside risk is protected if, if they got to liquidate um, it's not going to wipe them out it's going to wipe us out in exchange for that they allow us to have you know more of the upside um so a lot of them will will cap their returns somewhere around anywhere from 10 to 14 percent depending on the deal and then you know you can take everything beyond that interesting
1: are they putting risk capital up at all or is it just your your capital that's it
2: no again th- their biggest focus is you know Low risk. They they try to you know keep their their skin out of it as much as they can. So they don't put up risk capital. All the contract level risk is on you. And again, mm-hmm. that's the importance of you know understanding what they're looking for and developing these relationships because you need them to show up with the capital at the closing table.
1: How did you guys get comfortable with? putting a $26 million deal (laughs) out there, knowing that you've got, uh, I don't know what, whatever it was in earnest money, a million, $2 million in earnest money and going, okay, I hope these guys (laughs) follow through. How did you wrap your head around it and get comfortable with it?
2: I think first was the, you know, the deal. We, We liked the deal a lot. It's been, the deals performed phenomenally far above, you know, not only our, our projections, but I think far above whatever our, you know, best expectations of it were. Um, so we were very confident in the deal. We loved the location. The market was great. Um, you know, the value add play w- was, was awesome. Uh, given that, you know, it is a class A asset, it's newer build exteriors look great. Well, amenitized property. Um, it just had these, you know, builder grade finishes that were, pretty ugly um, dragging down rents of the property. So that's a pretty easy problem to solve. So that it really started with that. We had confidence in the deal. Um, so we, you know, we expected that uh, the institutions were gonna have confidence in the deal as well.
0: And through the, throughout the closing process, they were great to work with, right? So there was never any doubt that the relationship wasn't gonna work. We knew that they were just as hungry to deploy their capital as we were to, to win the deal. So, I don't think there was ever any doubt. Like, it's not like we got there on the last day of the 60 days and thought, oh, I hope they show up. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, six weeks, eight weeks before ironing out details on the contracts, we would have agreed the, the operating agreement with them well in advance of the closing table.
1: Yeah.
0: So, yeah, there, there wasn't really any doubt. And I guess it, it comes back to that mindset thing. You've got to think about the positives, not the negatives. How, how did, how did you gain their trust? You guys
1: are, you didn't have any experience. How did you gain their trust? Let's talk about the team that you built and and what you did to make sure that they were okay with who you were.
0: Yeah. You know,
2: really kind of leaning back on our collective business experience. Um, you know, my experience in construction, real estate, um, that really segued well into, you know, the similar business of, of buy and hold real estate. Um, so that, that part was, uh, you know, pretty easy. There wasn't a lot of, a lot of pushback on that. And, uh, from the beginning, you know, they, they liked the deal just as much as we did. Um, and given, you know, the market and, and the type of asset, uh, there wasn't really anything we were expecting to pop up during due diligence. That was going to be a surprise to, to either party.
1: Hmm. Okay. Um, all right. Last, last question mm-hmm. on the institutional part. Well, maybe, I don't know, there might be more, uh, <laughs> What are some what are some cons? We've talked. I mean, maybe we, you had some more pros that you want to add in there. But what are what are some of the the negatives for working with institutional? Do you guys work with family office as well at all?
2: Um, we've explored working with with a few of them. We haven't done a, a deal uh, with them yet, um, but you know, very very similar structures. Um, but as far as the cons go, you know, it it is, you know, you have an operating agreement that, that really protects the institution's downside risk. Um, in order to do that, you're assuming that downside risk. Um, so that, that's really the- Explain
1: that for our listeners, please.
2: Um, again, their, their whole mission is, is to protect their downside. Um, so they're, they're sitting at a lower leverage point for their last dollar and there's all sorts of agreements and, and performance metrics within the operating agreement that if, if you're not hitting the business plan, you know they have the right to, to step in and, and take the deal, similar to what a lender would. Um,
1: and if they come in and take the deal, does that put your investor capital at risk? Or is your investor do your investors get basically pushed out of the deal?
2: Um, they're not pushed out of the deal; they still own. You know, their equity in the deal. The question becomes. If they decide to to liquidate and drag the deal to sale at a time that's not opportune for your investors, again, they're looking at their last dollar, not your last dollar. Um, so if they decide, hey, we got to sell, liquidate, and get our cash back, uh, that doesn't preserve, you know, your investors' cash. Okay. Um, so the the key to you know that scenario, that clause is always going to be in those operating agreements in one form or another. The, the key is when you're negotiating, you get to set the metrics that would trigger that. Um, So we went back and forth, you know, on the metrics, they would measure this for um, where the strike point on those metrics would be and and made sure that they were, you know, very conservative to our business plan where we wouldn't encounter a scenario um, where we would have an issue. That makes sense.
0: I think we've kind of been through a lot of the talking points about institutional capital and, and the downsides. Like there are some key advantages. They can bring a big check. Um, Often it's a cheaper cost of capital than normal common equity, but there are some downsides and it's not perfect for every deal. And we by no means use this on every deal. This one seemed to be right for that deal. And it's part of our armory um, that we've got some of these relationships and that we can structure these deals. But it does introduce some extra risk into the deal. So it's not gonna be appropriate for every deal yeah um, and that's that's very much the way that we look at it we every deal we underwrite on its own merits we think is this going to be appropriate for pref equity or for mezzanine debt and sometimes the answer is no
2: yeah you know i think warren you, you nailed it there it's really it has its advantage the cheaper cost of capital but you have to view it you know like debt um there's numerous debt products available out there that you know some are better for some deals, some are, are not good for others, um, but it's really a, a cost of capital to leverage risk equation. Um, and then that's what we're looking at is is, is this particular deal over levered with this product.
1: It's another arrow in your quiver, so to speak, right? You, you have an option of using institutional equity doesn't mean you have to use institutional equity.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it's not, not appropriate uh, you know, for every deal.
0: And I think every, as an investor, we've got to look at everything on the risk return spectrum. We're trying to generate risk adjusted returns for our investors. Um, our criteria, we, we look for newer assets and we look to buy them in stronger markets. So as a general rule, we're targeting lower risk investments because it's not a 50 year old building and it's not in a tertiary market that might struggle to grow. Sure. So oftentimes because we're targeting a lower risk investment we feel that we can adequately add risk to the equation by putting another layer in the capital stack that's not always going to be appropriate um, and so the second deal for instance that we did we used bridge debt on that one we didn't use any um, mezzanine debt we didn't use pref equity it was just a straight three plus one plus one year bridge loan Um, At the time, we had some offers of PREF equity, but we decided just to go the traditional route on that one. Um, It's an older building. It was a 1986 product, so there was a little more risk inherent in the asset. And so we felt that that was the appropriate route to take on that one. Gotcha.
1: You guys have closed – in 2021, uh, you closed $130 million of multifamily. I'm assuming you're still buying today. And Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming you're still buying – how are you winning deals in you know today's market in 2021 how how are you winning deals at, that are you know conservative uh, conservative enough to be able to push forward with so in
0: 2021 i mean it, it's may 22 now but if i look back at 2021 i think some of the key success factors were broker relationships we really focused on developing relationships with the brokers that are in our market. Most of the stuff we buy is it's marketed because the people who own these A-class assets in these bigger towns, they're sophisticated. They know that they can push price using a broker. So most, almost all of it is, is marketed. It's not off market yep. So relationships was key. The other factor I think is going deep in a market. So a lot of the success we found in 2021 was around Tampa in Florida. And the more we bought, the more we knew about the market. We, could, we actually knew exactly what was going on. We could see people from the Northeast moving to this part of Florida. We could see rents increasing much faster than what CoStar was publishing. So that inside knowledge, that depth of knowledge, I think was a huge advantage at that point in time. We, are, we do have an appetite to buy more, but in May 2022, we're struggling to, to find value because prices have increased significantly and the cost of debt is starting to go up. Yeah. So we're in an interesting time at the moment. We're still very bullish about multifamily. We, we strongly believe in the asset class. Um, right now, I think it's more of a pricing factor um, and we're in a state of flux at the moment. So we can see that some prices are starting to fall potentially, some of the brokers are revising their pricing guidance. And while that's happening, it's an interesting time. We've just got to you know, find the deal that we strongly believe in and, and make sure that the pricing works to generate the returns that we need.
1: Are, are you sitting on the sidelines kind of watching or are you still actively pursuing just waiting until the, the right deal hits?
2: Yeah, we're actively, you know, pursuing deals, actively bidding. Um, but like Warren said, it's, it's an interesting environment where you have, you know, the fundamentals of, of real estate and the real estate cycle are still there. You you have, you know, demand side pressure from population growth. Um, you know, supply is still extremely constrained. Uh, you still have, you know, favorable wage growth, um, and all of this is driving phenomenal rent growth. Uh, it's just really a, a shift in the return profile that what the increased debt service doing is, is constraining that, that cash on cash metric. Um, so far overall returns, the IRRs are still holding up. We haven't seen, you know, any rapid cap rate expansion. Um, it's just a shift where current yields are coming down because of the increased debt service. Um, but like Warren said, we're still very bullish on, you know, multifamily, the fundamentals are still there in these growth markets that hasn't changed.
1: I, I heard somebody, uh, that's in Texas and uh, you know, every market's different, but they said that the real estate prices have dropped 12 to 15%. I have not seen that in my markets. Have you guys been seeing a drop yet of real estate prices?
0: Um, we, we go ahead. This the other day. Uh, guidance, pricing guidance from the broker has dropped for sure, but that doesn't necessarily mean that pricing has dropped because it seemed like in the early part of this year, every week, the brokers were just pushing pricing a little bit more in terms of what their guidance was. I think transactions for these types of deals take two to three months to close. So we, we kind of need to wait a couple more months to actually see deals are being traded today and then compare it to what those, like what other deals traded for three, four months ago. So I think, it feels like it's softening but yeah we, we haven't seen hard evidence of that just yet
1: yeah I thought that was interesting when I, I heard that and I thought well I guess I'd like to see the evidence of that because I agree I mean you're like you said you're you're typically about three months out so if you're saying it's gone down 10 to 12 percent that means three months ago it had gone down 10 to 12 or yeah. 12 to 15 percent or whatever it was so
2: yeah, and that's the thing is, if you look at the difference between guidance and actual trades, um, you know, we're seeing, you know, guidance being adjusted downwards. But if you look at, you know, the properties that have actually traded recently compared to, you know, properties that have traded 12 months ago, prices of actual trades are, are still coming up. Um, it, it's just properties aren't, aren't trading, you know, 10% above guidance anymore. Yeah. Yeah, interesting.
1: Um, well, we, we don't have a crystal ball, but what are your guys, what's, what's your crystal ball? What's your, what's your plan here moving forward and and how are you guys navigating through this?
0: I can, I can have a crack at that, I guess. Uh, I think we will see some price adjustment. I think we have to, because I think interest rates are going to keep rising in a meaningful way. And, and that affects our cost of capital which affects the price that we can pay for some of these assets. And I think that's true of 99% of the players out there who are looking to buy these assets. So I think there has to be some sort of price adjustment. Mm-hmm. I'm not convinced that it's going to be 10 or 12% or more. I think it's going to come down to the fundamentals of the market and the asset. And, as, and that's why we want to be buying in these growing cities where there are fundamental demographic shifts Um, where populations growing where there's a strong job market because I think in those markets and in the great sub markets within those markets there will always be a demand Um, so we're, we're still hoping to buy more assets this year I don't know if we're going to be able to do as much as we did in 2021 because it's going to come down to the assets we can buy and the prices we can pay
2: yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting environment for sure. Um, but again, our, our focus has always really been on on fundamentals um, and generating quality investments through focus on the fundamentals. Um, but there's still a tremendous amount of, of dry powder out there, earmarked, uh, for commercial real estate in the United States. I read upwards of, of $250 billion the other day in dry powder. So that, that's a lot of investor demand on the investment side. Um, you know, again, I think Cash on cash is going to be you know, tighter than it was, um, and I don't expect uh, it, it to come back to, to what it was. So there should be a little bit of price adjustment to get a little closer spread between you know, the debt and, and cap rates, but um, it's really about the growth, the growth of NOI. Um, you know, there's two things that drive appreciation of real estate, and that's cap rates and NOI, and we, we've seen a lot of, of cap rate-driven growth over the last 24 months. Um, and I think now is the time to sh- shift focus to really looking at what is driving that NOI growth um, to kind of offset that. Uh, where we're going to see cap rates probably level out instead of this aggressive compression that we've seen.
1: You know, you're in a market that has seen over 20% rent growth uh, over the last year, and it you know continues to see strong rent growth. There's other markets many other markets around the country that have seen the same maybe not quite as uh, much i think the last i saw tampa um in 2021 i believe was maybe 26% rent growth um do you, have, do you feel you have a concern with that with that rent growth um and what it could do to possibly negatively affect future rents or what are your thoughts there
2: Uh, I don't think we're going to see, you know, 20, 30% growth in the future, but I think we're going to see growth. Um, Again, the fundamentals of these markets are still there. The the thing that drives rent growth is um, supply and demand. Um, You know, we still are supply constrained. And and if you look at interest rates, it also affects the retail consumer, your home buyers. Um, They're losing buying power as well. So we're going to see people staying renters longer, which increases the demand pressure. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, supply is not going to catch up inbound migration is still very high. So that's there. The thing that will taper off this rent growth is going to be affordability. Um, if wages contract, if, if unemployment spikes, um, but so long as, as the rent growth is still affordable, um, we'll continue to see rent growth because you know people need a place to live um, and then there's not other options in these high density markets. Gotcha. Great.
1: Um, all right. Couple last questions, gentlemen. So what what each of you, what's a favorite book that you can rent recommend to our listeners?
0: Um uh, go ahead. No, you go uh, first. Uh yeah, the
2: is it the big debt cycle? It's one that you know I read recently that's that's probably relevant to the to the times here.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
0: I like a book called The Great Rat Race Escape. I think it's by MJ DeMarco. Um, it's really just about being an entrepreneur, understanding passive income, and not following that typical rat race of earning a salary, having increasing expenses consistently, and not being able to save and generate wealth in the future. Got it. So I really enjoyed that one. Love it.
1: What's a mistake that you've made and how have you learned from it? How can you teach our listeners?
0: I I mean, one that's fresh in my mind is I mentioned I I was a passive investor in syndications first and foremost, and I invested with a couple of sponsors who didn't perform great. Fortunately, I invested at a time where anyone could make money. So I didn't lose money. But I didn't enjoy the experience. There was very poor communication. There was some poor operations that I could observe. So I've definitely learned that it's it's really important to understand who you're investing with and mm-hmm. understand their track record and their abilities and their willingness to communicate.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That that last part I think is so huge. And I hear it from my passive investors and and that have invested in other deals, that communication is so huge. That's the number one complaint.
0: And it's so easy. I mean, it should be so easy, right? Yeah.
1: Tell them, right what, tell them what's going on. That's it. <laughs> Great. Um, Ryan, do you want to add anything?
2: Um, yeah. You know, I, I think uh, in, in terms of investments, it's important to invest in, you know, things that, that you understand. Um, You know, I, I've tried investing in the stock market, you know, three or four times uh, throughout uh, my career. And it never worked out because it's not an asset class that, you know, I understand. Sometimes I, I got lucky, but you know, most of the time I, I made mistakes because I didn't understand the fundamentals of, of how paper assets function. Um, you know, I spent spent a lot of time you know, most of my career in, in real estate, one form or another, and you know, I intimately understand how that asset class works, um, and investments in that have been successful for me.
1: Love it, love it. Yeah, do do what you know. All right, last question, and in each of you guys can answer this. So what are your three pillars of wealth creation? Warren, why don't you go first?
0: Okay. I, I think the first one has to be something around network. I think it's a team sport and you've really got to build a network and have a great group of peers around you. I think that's a huge success factor. Um, managing risk has to be important as well. I think it's not all about return, but really managing the downside. I mean, that's, that's what wealth is. Building wealth is all about managing the downside because if you start making losses, it just destroys wealth in the long-term. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess on that point, the other thing that comes to mind is diversification. So as an investor, I'm always looking to diversify and that can come in many forms. It could be geographic. It could be diversifying amongst the number of sponsors. It could be asset classes. But I think it's important to spread that risk through diversification. Love it.
2: All right, Ryan. Yeah, no, it's uh, you know pretty pretty much mirrors that. Those, those are the basics of it. You know, it it, it is a team sport, and uh, you know you need to network. There's going to be other opportunities uh, that you wouldn't other have you know, otherwise have, if you didn't have, you know, connections with people doing other things in, in other areas or doing it in, in a different way. Um, but you know, the key is really in, in having passive income, uh, you can only do so much as an individual. Um, so if you're really going to, to build wealth and gain, you know, time freedom, um, you know, you need to find a way to, to generate uh, cash flow while you're sleeping, um, you know, while you're doing other things. Um, and then, you know, diversification is, is important. Having multiple streams of this cash flow coming in is, is really the, the key to gaining that that time freedom. And that's that's really what it, what it is for me in wealth building is, is having that time. That's the ultimate currency. Um, you know, we're, we're losing it every day. It becomes more valuable inherently.
1: Love it. Absolutely. Time. Uh, It goes very fast, Uh, especially the older you get. I used to roll my eyes and just like shake my head when I I would hear that from older people. But now I'm one of those older people. And I go, holy crap, they were actually right.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, I I've got, uh, you know, two young kiddos, my oldest is six, and he's in school. and, And I remember vaguely he's talking about oh you know how long is it till till summer break and you're like oh no we got a little ways to go and he's like a year is is a massive amount of time to to a young child it just seems to drag on and and now as an adult and just like where where does it go
1: Yep. yep absolutely well cool uh look warren ryan really appreciate appreciate the the knowledge that you've given we don't talk enough probably about the institutional money out there. We talk a lot about syndication from just individuals, but we don't talk too much about that. So I really appreciate the education you were able to give our listeners on that and the wealth of knowledge uh, on everything we've talked about today. How can our listeners get in touch with you guys, learn more about what you got going on and and connect?
0: The best way would be to visit our website, equityyieldgroup.com. Um, you can check out what we're up to, sign up for our monthly newsletters, keep in touch that way.
1: Great. Awesome. Well, gentlemen, again, really appreciate appreciate the time. You have a fantastic rest of the day.
0: Thanks a lot.